This is podcast 342, entitled Strange Conflict, and you've just heard from the King's College Choir a um, two verses, including the final descanted one of While Shepherds Wash Their Flocks by Night, an early, early English Christmas carol, and I think one of the greatest achievements of the English choral tradition, especially that last first, which we were able actually to hear the King's College Choir in person on Christmas Day just a year ago. And I want to consider this a kind of a Christmas podcast episode, but in fact, I'd like to push the envelope. I would really like to push the envelope today in favor of what I'm really thinking. It's something that we seldom do. We, um, it's just a fact. <laughs> people, people get so uncomfortable, but then later on, they always admit it. You know, there's something that you're thinking about that you're not talking about, and it always helps to talk about it. Um, not that you have to go screaming it from the, you know, if you shout it from the rooftops, it's probably not that important because the really important things you're never going to tell, even if you cover them up with the appearance of vulnerability and the appearance of vouchsafing a lot of honest things about yourself, you find out that, in fact, there's always something that you have, uh, what is that beyond the fringe parody of the English vicar who says, uh, life is like a tin of sardines. There's always that little bit in the corner. Well, I'm going to talk about that, but in broad broad sort of uh, push-the-envelope terms, and I hope you'll find it both um, amusing and possibly uh, penetrating. That's the hope. I was consulting a person of whom I regard of absolutely highest stature. I regard him in the same category as Paul Walker, whom I also regard as a man of God of the highest stature. And um, this particular chap, who's a very celebrated um, artist in his field, um, is a person who makes a practice of spending a tremendous amount of time on his knees uh, every day to my great um, admiration. And uh, I was telling him once, uh, not all that long ago, without going into details, I said, you know, I, I still have something that recurs. I have this this thought that keeps recurring. And by the way, I'm not talking about anything untoward. I'm talking about a, a, an experience that recurs. You might call it a dreamlike experience that recurs, not an actual thing or an actual intention, but a dreamlike experience that occurs and has the ability to to monopolize uh, one's thinking uh, at all kinds of strange hours, not every day, but uh, often enough. And I asked this uh, terrific chap, I said, uh, uh, could you, um, do, do you have contacts on the other side? Do, do you have, uh, you know, he's such a profound um, practitioner of the spiritual life. I, I said, could you help me with this? And um I told him the broad outlines of what I had in my mind, and uh, he went away for a day or two and came back and almost blithely said, well, your problem's been solved. I prayed about it, and the answer I got very, very clearly was, your, your problem's been solved. And then I said, are you kidding me? I mean, do you really mean that? And then uh, he said, well, let me go check. And he went back another day, and he, he put it before his, his uh, spiritual what's the word, um, spirit guides, I see that as uh, the Holy Spirit, and he asked again, 
And he came back rather quite cheerfully and said, yes, I've, I've, it's absolutely clear that the problem's been solved. And then I said to him, well, in what sense has it been solved? Or how so? And he said, well, it's been solved on the astral plane. Well, fortunately, he didn't have me um, completely kiboshed there because I'm open enough to these things, or at least I've become interested enough in all sorts of possibilities. You always do when you're looking for answers. You, you are open to things. When you're, when you're needing an answer that you cannot find in a conventional path, you're going to be open to it. You might say wherever you can find it. This is why people become Christians, because people who have long since given up on God or on uh, a specific version of religious help, when they're absolutely at their at a complete impasse or block, uh, they may in fact say a prayer, like in The Bishop's Wife, when the bishop, who is really a rather secular, well-meaning person in the movie from 1947 with David Niven, when the bishop actually prays, he actually prays in words to God in a time of tremendous frustration and upsetment, and the prayer is instantly, supernaturally answered. Well, um, I believed this chap, and when he said the astral plane, I said, now let me talk, think about that, the astral plane. Um, well, immediately one's mind went back to Dennis Wheatley. You know, I've talked about him on the cast. He's long dead and was a, um, uh, an English author of supernatural, what was then called occult fiction. We would call it supernatural fiction, and was extremely successful. Not a very good writer, in my opinion, but a very uh, powerful uh, convinced imagination, and he wrote all sorts of books which were made into movies, and particularly here's out to Glove Man, my wonderful friend John Glover, and Clarendon, my wonderful friend Josh Redder. You all have seen The Devil Rides Out, a.k.a. The Devil's Bride, and you've seen other uh, movies that were based on, uh, on Wheatley's novels, and he wrote one novel. It's my favorite one of them. And it came out, of, I think, in 1943, in the height of World War II, just after the Blitz, although he wrote it. He wrote it during the Blitz in its worst moments in London. And it's called Strange Conflict. And it's how a kind of spiritual Christian... French aristocrat who was played by Christopher Lee in the movie, uh, whose title is Le Duc de Richelieu, finds an answer to the question of why allied fleets, shipping fleets, are being torpedoed by German submarines in the earlier days of World War II, and how it is that they find out where these ships are, given the state of radar at that point and the state of uh, communicability. How is it that the German submarines are able to find and torpedo these English and American fleets coming over to England and back and forth? And he, um, no one knows. They're completely flummoxed. They absolutely have no idea where the leak is. And so the Duc de is kind of informally commissioned to see if he can use his spiritual wisdom. And what he does is he goes off on the astral plane. He has a way of kind of falling asleep with an assistant who kind of keeps everything quiet. And he sleeps in kind of a, you know, a, a holy pentangle and says a lot of prayers. And then his spirit leaves his body and he is able to, as it were, fly over London and see the true facts of what is going on. So he sees, for example, a, a, a block of houses that has just been bombed by the Germans. And everyone in the block of houses, about 100 people, have died, men, women, and children. They've all been killed in this horrible bomb 
bomb blast. And he comes and sees them, but they don't know they're dead yet. So they're sort of sitting in their grave clothes, no, actually in their pajamas and their nightgowns, being ministered to by kind of angels who they think are Red Cross nurses. And they're gradually going to come to the conclusion, the understanding that they have they have died. And some are happy when they realize it because they're sort of in touch with the soul and what happens to the soul after death. And others are utterly mystified. And some are deeply angry. And he sees the state of people's souls as they are just recovering from having been killed by a, a, a Nazi bomb. And then he moves along. He wants to find the life of what's going on in the heart of the chief naval intelligence officer in London because he thinks maybe the leak is there. So he finds the the a man asleep in the same room as his wife, this very major uh, naval officer. And um, he goes and he watches what happens to the soul of the man as he sleeps. And the soul of the man as he sleeps, this now 64-year-old, brilliant uh, but very experienced naval officer, his, his soul goes off to a very early time in his career when he was stationed somewhere in the Far East. And he, he's going to visit his, his girlfriend on land in a kind of thatched hut. And uh, uh, he, he's very well-meaning. The, the young fellow's going off to have a rendezvous with this uh, young lady uh, on shore leave. And uh, as uh, the Duc de Richelieu sees this man's whole soul spread apart from when he was 18 to when he was 30 to when he was 40, he sees that the man's deepest soulful intimations and aspirations are, while normal and uh, in some ways amusing, are not at all malignant. There's nothing malignant. So He's able to discount that man. And then he goes to watch another man's soul, you might say, in his sleep from beginning to end. And, oh, my gosh, he sees uh, that that man is basically all right. And uh, then, however, he makes some further discoveries. You must read the, it's especially the um, second, third, fourth, and fifth chapters of um, of uh, Strange Conflict. It's a little bit dated in some of its stereotypes, but that comes near the end. Then he was writing in 1942. But let's just look at the important part of the book, which is the astral plane. And what I understood from my friend when he said, the problem's been, been solved on the astral plane. I thought to myself, well, it must have been solved this way. In other words, the state of my soul, the state of my inwardness, the state of my deepest hopes, aspirations, uh, and also losses and uh, sadnesses and uh, failures and missteps and all the character uh, parts of temperament that are good and bad, um, whatever it was that has been afflicting me in this particular thing that uh, at times has come back, um, it's... um, it's been solved. It's not going to be solved, or it's not about to be solved, or it's not on the way to being solved, but it has been solved. Now, that was striking to me. That made a huge impression, and I kept, uh, I never got quite an answer as, well, what does that actually mean now? I mean, does that mean that the historical facts uh, of this or that, or one's temperament, or one's uh, early childhood. You, you, everybody has their own. You can go back and find something that is vexing to you that you'd love to have the cross uh, unburdened from your back. You'd love to be to have the the great um, sack that Christian and John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress is carrying. You'd love to have that removed, wouldn't you? Or like Scrooge, have the anvils removed from the knees of the purgatorial, uh, the 
purgatorialized fellow human beings outside the window. You'd like them all to be loosened. And I wanted to ask the chap, what does that actually mean? Well, he, he like all wise guides, that includes Paula White, he, didn't, he gave me what he could give me, but he didn't give me anything more than he could give me. In other words, he gave what he'd heard. He didn't elaborate or make up or try to justify or fill in the blanks. He told me what he had told me, like it happened in the Bible. You know, what I've, what I've said, I've said. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, I've told you what I've said, and that's what I've said. You've got to deal with that. That's all I know to tell you. Well, um, but then now here is what we call, we, today we say, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to tell you, really, I'm going to go out on the limb now and tell you how it actually uh, played out, because this, this might uh, open a door. I noticed that almost as soon as um, I received word from this source that was very convinced and sincere, and whose word I trusted from the past, um, as soon as uh, the word came that the problem's been solved on the astral plane, I noticed that my dreams changed almost immediately. And I want to talk about that for a minute. My actual, usually one's dreams are negative. They are so often you're delayed in trying to do something. You're trying to get somewhere and you can't get there. You're trying to find something that you can't find out, or you're frustrated by some external uh, circumstance that is preventing you from accomplishing what you want to do. Um, so often, I don't know about you, but so often dreams are, are of, of a nature of involving some negative circumstance that is curtailing you or uh, surrounding you or preventing you or causing you to believe that things are, have unfairly been meted out or something negative. I very rarely had dreams that I would consider had a happy endings. Occasionally, occasionally, but for the most part, dreams are uh, sort of long odysseys of uh, unfulfilled, uh, uh, undestiny reachable, de destination reachable uh, journeys. And um, all of a sudden, my dreams specifically and wholly change to the positive, like that night, uh, unconsciously. I can't, I can't imagine that. Um, I'm sure tonight, you know, having said it, I'll have a bad dream, but I had about eight positive, happy dreams, some lengthy even, which didn't turn dark after they became light, but continued bright. One night after night after night. In fact, it's one of the reasons I sort of wanted to go to bed. I've, even now, I sort of look forward to going to sleep at night because I think I'll I'll probably get some good thing. Let me give you some examples. Um, I uh, I was um, found myself uh, in Los Angeles in the dream, talking to the sister of someone whom I knew very very well, very well, and loved very deeply, who's now dead. This person. And um, I was talking to his sister. His sister is um, just by background and schooling and uh, all the her the surroundings, I would consider what you might call very liberal in uh, everything from politics to religion to social mores, you name it. She just is. Um, she certainly has been that way with me, although a very lovely person. I remember meeting her once at Yale and uh, to talking about her, and I said, uh-oh, you know, I'm getting this. This is, this is 55 years ago. But she, um, she uh, in the dream, I was suddenly talking to her at her kitchen table, and I was saying to her, you know, um, we've never talked about this, but I have a tradition view of uh, marriage. It's not for a sociological or political or, or even um, sort of psychological reasons. It's based on theology. I'm, my personal view of, of marriage is a traditional one 
from the Bible as I understand it. And I said this to her, fully expecting in the dream to have my head chopped off uh, or my uh, entire body ripped open and uh, never uh, stitched back together again. And in the dream, that's not what happened at all. She said, oh, Paul, she said in the dream, how very interesting. I've always wondered that if you had had those views, that particular view. And, you know, I can see why. I can see why, given the person that you are and your uh, approach in uh, the ministry. This is, she said this in the dream. I can see why you would think that. Tell me more. I'd really like to know more about, about how you've come to see things this way. I don't see them this way, but I'm really interested uh, in how an old friend might see these things. Well, I was blown away, and I woke right up, and I said, Are you kidding me? I'm talking to this person who I would never dare to talk about such a thing. I care about her, but I would never dare to talk about such a thing. And I got this very very, very open, open-ended, interested, acknowledging response emotionally. I couldn't believe it. So then two days later, I dream that I'm desperately looking for a kind of piece of cloth that is um, rectangular and emerald green. I'm looking for a piece of cloth that is rectangular and emerald green. And um, I've lost it. And I've lost it everywhere. I can't find it anywhere. And for some reason in the dream, this particular piece of cloth is important. And then suddenly I turn around and there it is. There's the stitched piece of cloth, rectangular and emerald green, and it's right there in front of me and I have it in my hand. Well, I'll give you um, one final example. Uh, this just came from this week, and I had no dreams other, other than these dreams that I remember. Um, I'm uh, looking for my car, and I'm with a child, not one of my own children, but a young, per- a young uh, child in, who's in my care as a grandfather or something. And I'm looking for a, a, my car uh, that I've parked on kind of a ridge in a kind of a city, a suburb that is on a ridge. And I find the car, and as I come to the car, there's a chap trying to start it. He's trying to steal the car. And I said, wait a minute. This is my car. It has my Florida license plate. You're stealing my car. You can't do this. Get out right away. And he says, and then he does get out. And he says, well, I was stealing it. He said, you know what I did? He said, I, I bought it from the guy you bought it from who said uh, you didn't really need it and I could buy it from him. In other words, the chap in the car who was stealing my car said he had actually, in his own mind, bought the car from the fellow who'd sold it to me, who obviously was the real villain of the piece, and was, in fact, feeling that he had the right to drive away my car which now belonged to him, according to his story. And I said, well, you can't do this. And I became very upset, and I was afraid I was going to have to call a policeman or something like that. Um, wouldn't find one, but I wanted to try. And he, w- But all of a sudden, he came out of the car, and we stood looking at each other. And for some reason, this is what I said. You know, he sa- I said, why don't you take the car? I mean, maybe you need it more than I do. I, I can buy another car from the same chap, and I think probably he'll reimburse me the money. Since you've paid him, he'll probably give me back my money, and uh, I can buy another car. And it happened to be the guy was the husband of someone I knew at Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham. I knew I knew the fellow who'd sold this chap my car, not owning it. And uh, so I said, you know, you take the car. I, I'll, I'll get the money back from the, the guy, and I'll get another car. And I completely gave way, and he was so touched. He said, you know, I, was, I can't believe you understand. I really need this, and I, I'm, I'm so grateful to you. He almost gave me back the car, and we sort of parted as friends and kind of hugged, and I went back with my grandson or whoever it was walking to uh, find the chap who'd sold him the car. Now, can you believe that dream? It ended with such positive vibes. I couldn't believe it. Well, that is my little way of saying that um, I now believe that when my 
artist friend told me that the problem's been solved on the astral plane. He obviously solved it in my dreams, and the astral plane is is something that seems to be in touch with my deepest feelings that have come out in these dreams, which are positive as opposed to negative. Mary's in most of them, by the way. She's always with me in my dreams, but she was usually in me when I couldn't find something, or with me when I was lost and couldn't find where we were going in the dream. But now, here she is, and because I was going to go take the car and meet Mary with this grandchild. Well, isn't that a Amazing. So I just thought I'd push the envelope a little bit. You might have a problem that needs to be attended to on the astral plane, like the like the problem of Great Britain and the Nazi blitz in Strange Conflict by Dennis Wheatley. And you might need to consider whether maybe it hasn't been solved on the astral plane and you need to get up there or somebody needs to get up there. But in my case, I, I believe it probably has been solved. And that's my little word. I wish you a Merry Christmas. And I'd like to play now to conclude Include my little Christmas greeting to all those I love who listen to this cast. Um, I'd like to play uh, the Berlin Philharmonic playing a very famous television uh, theme that applies to this cast. The Berlin Philharmonic. Happy Christmas. Love you. Mm-hmm. 